So if you've been with us the last little while, we're just taking each month for, it'll be the next, I guess, six months after this one, and we're just devoting um, each month to one of the fruit of the Spirit. And where this list of the fruit of the Spirit comes from, it's from a letter that was written about 2,000 years ago from an apostle, and an apostle for us is somebody who has seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead and is commissioned by God to teach the church the truth about Jesus. And especially um, the apostles, many of them wrote scripture, which God used people to create letters and books that he stands behind and says, I wrote this, and this is my book, and you trust these words, you're trusting me. And so the Apostle Paul, one of our apostles, wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia that were having this crisis, and it was over um, circumcision, uh, religious body modifications, and there was a group of people thinking that if you really wanted to get right with God, you needed to snip, snip this thing, and true fact, and he was saying, no, since Jesus is raised from the dead, um, every important thing that will ever happen to you will be done spiritually through the Holy Spirit, applying what Jesus accomplished to you. After Jesus is raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, everything that really matters is not first of all, flesh and blood, but starts in the Spirit of God. It expresses itself through flesh and blood, but it's all by the Spirit first. And so he gives us this list just so we can tell, so that nobody's coming in here with a super soaker full of moose urine and spraying everybody because they are angry and saying, I did that in the Spirit. You can go to this list and be like, it didn't feel like love. It didn't look like joy. You weren't creating any peace. You weren't acting in patience. It definitely wasn't kindness. It definitely was not smelling goodness. How were you showing faithfulness? That wasn't very gentle, and you weren't displaying any self-control. We don't believe it was the Spirit. True? Yes, we're all in agreement. So now nobody gets to say, I said to do it. And this month we're focusing on peace. The Greek word for peace is erene, and very simply, and this is very much like how we use the word peace in English, so this is pretty easy. The first definition would be a state of concord, so peace and harmony, everyone getting along together. The band comes up here on a Sunday morning. The band was a blessing this morning, yes? Does anybody just want to give a little thank you for blessing us? Clap. So they get up here, they're all committed to everything sounding good together by working together with each other, and the drums are doing their part, and the bass is doing its part, and then they get quiet so the electric twanger can noodle for its part, and then the singing, and they're not like all trying to sing over each other, and then somebody says one of the words wrong, and they don't like, just stop and say, you failed me again, you know? They, there's lots of peace up here, sorry. I guess that only happens on Thursday nights. Is that how it works? It's just not on Sunday mornings. I'm just teasing. It's just an example of peace as in harmony, concord, people working together for each other's good and for the greater good to accomplish a purpose, which is to bless the church with music. 
Another use of the word is that state of well-being, peace, sometimes called inner peace, feeling the chill. Um, and so we're going to be looking at that today. And that, this kind of inner peace is a really big deal. It is a multi-billion dollar industry in North America to try to find peace. Uh, between the vacations and the spas and the hot yoga and the, um, the vitamins, the meds, the street drugs, and all kinds of online interactions, uh, we, we tend to be a people um, really investing our time and energy in trying to find some real peace some sense of well-being, that sense that, like, I'm okay, everything's okay. And for us in North America, despite our technology and despite our uh, technological advancements that actually allow us to not have to devote most of our waking hours just to feeding ourselves each day, peace can feel very elusive and fragile for many of us. Would, would you be willing to just put up your hand to make other people not feel alone if just regularly feeling an absence of anxiety and real deep peace, if, if, if it's hard for you to stay there? Could you just put up your hand nice and high, look around? Thank you. Okay, no, sorry, sorry, I didn't see a lot of people looking around. Now is the look around time, okay? <laughs> there we go, thank you. It's very common to feel not peaceful. And we're in good company. And Jesus wants us to continue to grow in finding peace in him. My peace I give you, he said to us before he went up to heaven. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace. That kind of being able to relax, being able to be calm, being able to feel okay, being able to... Uh, be calm when things aren't calm, when things are rough, when things are going wild. That is something that God wants to continue to grow us in. And so he's not uncaring, and he's not unfeeling, and he's not giving us a you're-on-your-own-loser attitude when it comes to stuff like this. And today, you know, I, I sometimes tell jokes I sometimes attempt to tell jokes as well, and I sometimes fail to tell a joke. And so if I say something that just hits you wrong, um, I'm not here to hurt or shame anybody about this topic today. So if you can let this official flavor that I'm trying to say right now, um, let you not worry that I'm thinking the worst of you and your experiences, I would be grateful for that. Let's look at our scripture for the day. We'll read this together. This is my normal perch over here by the stairs, and I try not to fall down them. All right. These are the very words of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. True admission, this verse is one of the verses that most challenges me that this could be real. Because I don't often feel like the peace of God that surpasses understanding is guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And this is that same verse that I wish were most true for me. Because I would love to live here. Anyone else? Yeah. Well, okay. Gather your thoughts quietly for a second and then proceed. How are we going to tackle this? Let's talk about our culture for a bit. Um, Last week when we were together, I said some people call this the anxious age. I found out that that is actually a collection of poems from some poet you've probably never heard of. Um, We don't live in a time where poets ever get famous unless you're a doctor, like the famous Dr. Zeus. But um, (laughs) even that guy said he, he, he rhymed something with something else one time, and now he's canceled. And... uh, which is rough. Um, yeah, <laughs> such a weird time. But speaking of which, we do live in this very anxious age. And it's just so normal. It's so normal that for everyone to be anxious all the time, that you can get resented by people for not being anxious about whatever the new thing that everyone's supposed to be stressed out about is. Yeah. Like, like there's a moral obligation to our culture to be as unsettled all the time by whatever is happening on Facebook. And if you aren't, you're a bad person. And there's reasons for this, and I'm going to get lost a little bit because it's a complicated story, but I thought it'd be helpful for me just to read a psalm and explain how we're doing the opposite of this psalm and why that contributes to us being at such unrest most of the time. So this is Psalm 127. It's from Solomon. I bet you've never seen it in a sermon before, so you're welcome. But here is Solomon. It's a short one, and he is kind of describing just how life works well. So Solomon's like the wisest guy who ever lived until Jesus came. Um, It didn't save him from his own unbelief. In the end, he didn't take his own advice, and it really harmed him. But he described just kind of like how life works best. Solomon was king during the best time in the history of Israel, during the most extended period of peace, during their greatest political influence, during the most peace that Israel ever had. Solomon was king. And he's kind of, I think, describing community um, thriving well, very shortly. He says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So you have this psalm from the wisest guy who ever ruled a kingdom, except for Jesus. And he's talking about how not to do it and how to do it. And if I would just take all these verses and boil them all together in a soup, I think essentially what he's saying is a culture that works is one that is purposefully worshiping God with how it works while valuing people and family and generations. Purposefully focusing on trusting God while it goes about its work and valuing people and families and generations. And this is the culture that God gives rest. For the last couple hundred years, we have been trying to do the opposite of this. Partially influenced by Karl Marx for the first chunk in his communist ideas, there is no God, there is only work. You know, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your faith and your purpose and your reason for existing and all moral categories that will keep you from massacring your brothers and sisters and countrymen until there's nobody less but Stalin. That's kind of a longer version of how it went out. He called them chains, but those were the kinds of chains that stopped you from being an absolute moral monster. And then especially started with um, the father of modern-day psychology, Sigmund Freud, who said there is no God. The purpose of life is just um, sexual gratification so that the whole sexual world according to him, and I'm, this is a boil down. He wrote lots more than this, but he just thought all of human existence really is about seeking to um, experience the kind of pleasure that happens when you have unrepressive sexual uh, activity. And these guys were almost at the same time, roughly the same time. And if you take their works together, and they've got lots of, of course, people reworking their stuff and blending their stuff and tweaking their stuff, but they really were kind of uh, anchor people in the processes but, but it's normal in North America, if you're watching where the culture is going, the, the, the kind of like projected life for young people who are born these days is like if you, if, if you are the 80% that survives the womb, your job is to go to school where you get plied with all kinds of interesting ideas and then you are medicated while you have um, childless and um, non-committed relationships with people. And it's people now, though there's a guy in the States who's a very influential philosopher who's saying, hey, if we're all just animals, why restrict it to people? And that is going to happen. So you are medicated with empty relationships until you're, you, you just can't handle it anymore, and then you go to the hospital to get mated. That's the projection of culture right now. Like the cutting edge of culture is just chemicals, and using people to produce chemicals in you, and then when you can't take it anymore, 
one more chemical to, to finish it off. And in the midst of all this stuff, we have so many competing ideas of what the world is and isn't that, like, where do you go to kind of just be who you are without somebody getting offended that you've said something wrong? I may have heard a teenager say recently, I would like to be able to go to school and just use some words without thinking that these words today may cause someone to spaz out. These, like, regular words. So, school's an anxious place, even if your grades are fine. But the world's an anxious place. Even if you get out of the pandemic, and maybe uh, the inflation is starting to get under control again, and then it's just time to get back on worried about climate change. Because you have to be... Can I just... I know, I, I know you don't love this, but I do. I was reading a CBC story this week, and it just made me smile so big. Because <laughs> they were, they were the, the people in charge of things. And this is CBC, so it's a very sympathetic article, right? So it's not a gotcha article. CBC loves this stuff, so it's very sympathetic. They were saying, you know, the world got way hotter this last year than anyone was expecting. We won't feel it here, but somewhere it must have. <laughs> Sorry, I have to, internet, sorry. It's Manitoba. It's, all we have is laughing about it. That's all we have. <laughs> That's all we have. Anyhow, they were saying the world got really hot, and they were trying to explain why. And the, the theory that they put on CBC, so national news, was that um, all these tankers that go throughout the world, the boat tankers that go throughout the world moving everything, um, I think they run on diesel usually, but they leave sulfur in the water where they go. And so in order to save the world, they've been reducing the sulfur levels in the pollutants that come out of the boat. But unfortunately, what the sulfur was doing was it is actually causing the oceans to reflect more of the sun's rays off of the water. And so by saving the ocean from the sulfur, they actually made the oceans absorb more heat, which caused the world to go up. But next time, they've got it. <laughs> and bless them. But it's it, like the climate is the most complicated thing in the universe. Aside from how your soul works. And, and, but the, the thing is, and my point is... No matter whether it's getting better or worse, you have to be afraid. Even if God, after the flood, said, I am not going to let that happen again, there will be seasons and sowing and reaping until the end. Even if he said that, you can't just trust that. You have to be anxious all the time. You have to be anxious. Because if you stop, you might come to peace with your Lord and Savior and Creator. And so we do. We just live in this time of like extreme anxiety. And I think I want to say, as, as much as I'm laughing about stuff, and I don't mind fixing the environment. I don't mind, like, the clean up the coffee cups is good. 
and um, if there's a major chemical spill, not lighting it on fire is good, and cleaning up the water is good, and protecting, protecting like stuff people need is good, and trying to keep animals from going extinct is good. But you, we really will only be able to do any good out of trust in the Creator. And I could, I could just keep going. Like it's sorry. And this is my point here. This stuff is so contagious that even if you don't believe any of it it still impacts you. Like, fear is contagious. Worry is contagious. Um, how many, like, unsettled people need to be in the room before you get elevated? Unsettled people. Somebody who looks like they might blow up or explode or something like that. You know, you, you have a family gathering and somebody starts talking about Trump. <laughs> and then... The peace is gone. Right? Because that person knows what that person, then and the elevation's going up, and then you don't know. You start going, okay, I can dive out that window, but then I have to run all the way in my bare feet around to here to get my car keys. It's just, it's a very anxious age, and we're all in it. And we're going to need a lot of grace for each other. So when we read a passage like this, where it says, uh, do not be anxious about anything, it's pastorally wise to not think you're going to be able to say someone who's stressed out, well, the Bible says don't be anxious. So, so what's wrong with you? That's, that's most of the time not going to be helpful. Anyhow, let's continue to look at the Word of God for some ideas of what we can do. Like just trusting that God wants to teach us how to be peaceful in our hearts in an anxious age. He wants to show us how we can actually have hard things happen and go through the whole process of like, this hurts, this sucks, I'm worried, I'm unsettled, and finding Jesus again to grow in our ability to go through something else. Like, this is one of the weird things about stress and anxiety, is that if you feel it regularly, you can think, I always suffer with this without realizing that you've been growing in strength over the years, and you're doing way better than you've ever done. You don't see that, because the feelings are still there. But just knowing that it is God's will for us to to see us growing in the Lord, in our peace. So one thing about like the strategy from here on out is we're going to look at that passage I did, but it was also, who's doing the, the Bible writing challenge today? Okay, it's so weird. I was just thinking to myself this morning, I pick up my Bible, I'm reading Psalm 37, because Psalm 37 is like the counselor's notes for how to talk to anxious people. <laughs> you know, if, if you're anxious, this is your psalm. And I'm just reading it. I'm like, oh, I should mention that people should spend some time in this. And then it turned out that that was the, the passage for this morning, right? And I'm just like, Jolene did it again! 
get out of my mind. So I thought it'd be really cool to actually take the Philippians passage and then add one of the sayings from Psalm 37 and kind of have two different portions of scripture singing in harmony together. All right. Thought number one, rejoice in the Lord. Um, Anybody ever feel better after worship time? Okay. Anybody just put up your hands. We're going to do a hands look around again. Okay. Look. Okay. This is like 90% in unity. We feel better after actually singing praises to God. The Bible is working. It's working. It's working. And part of why is Psalm 37, 3 says, I know that was where I was, I was right with you, Rob. And then you did that. And then it was, and then I know afterwards we're going to be driving home and my spouse is going to say to me, are we going to keep going? Is this normal? What if I agreed to? Psalm 37, 3, it says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can hear rejoice in the Lord. And because we're this psychological people, we see everything quite mechanically when it comes to our minds. Believe this, it will produce this, do this, it will produce this, pop this, it will do this. We can see things quite mechanically where the world is much more relational spiritually. And I'm not denying the medical side of things. It can be so helpful, and I'm very grateful. But we're not just bodies. And so the, exp- the thing isn't just like rejoice in the Lord so that you can manipulate the chemicals and cause yourself to feel different. In Psalm 37, it says this, When you are in relationship with the living God, you can't out-enjoy how much He wants to enjoy you. And you can't delight in him more than he wants to delight in you. And you can't be more faithful to him than he wants to be faithful to you. So delight yourself in the Lord and he wants to enjoy also giving you the desires of your heart. As you determine to trust in him and to do good. So this is just number one. Like, let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's rejoice in the Lord. The, the worst worship I was involved in this week was me. It was either this morning or yesterday morning, trying to take my own advice and making, like, singing worship to the Lord part of my time with him. It sounded awful. <laughs> there was nothing Tim behind the sound desk could do to fix it either. It was just terrible. I bet it was nice. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was... It was a good moment with the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. My heart's already changing right now. How I've proved it o'er and o'er. What does o'er even mean? Does it matter? I'm spending time with the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. And it's not just chemicals. He's here with us. He's so good. 
And he's so much bigger than everything. Yeah, right. You know, I have told Greg, I, I will walk by Greg's office singing, and I'll look, you know, I've got the, the talent. <laughs> I'm risen over here, as the kids like to say. <laughs> we have not come to unity on this thing. <laughs> Whatever. Thought number two. Landscape your mind garden. There's reality... And then there's what we think about reality. There's truth, and then there's propaganda. There's how the world really is, and then how, the world, how we're afraid the world might be or become. And that territory inside your skull is a garden that you can make a place where you, in your nakedness, will enjoy the presence of the Lord in the cool of the day. I'm just talking about the Garden of Eden. It's okay. It's, it's a metaphor. Naked, like you're honest with the Lord, and you're not afraid to think honest thoughts. <sighs> Jackie is my best um, instant feedback. You know, I just look at her face, and it's like I have, I've, I've, I'm, I've, it's operation, and I've just put the needles off, the zzz, off to the side. You're not getting that wishbone. Your brain is a garden. There's, there's certain plants planted there. Um, there are probably some parts of your brain that the drainage is horrible, and it's very swampy, and there's all kinds of mosquitoes that pop, like grow out of it because certain thoughts never drain. We had our two houses ago. We, our backyard was, it was before the city like required drainage in between houses, quite older. And so all the water would just like pool, in the backyards of the houses, and our house got quite a bit of it. And so we did this whole landscaping thing where we were, I was trying to dig tunnels and put rocks and try to get the water to move to places that was covered in rocks, like loose rocks, so that it wasn't like just a mud bath. And I'm sure there's somebody who knows what they're doing who is thinking right now, you are absolutely incompetent, which I would agree. <laughs> but with a little bit of work, you can tr- change the drainage and put in some plants, and mow the grass, and make a place that looks like the bush turn into a place that looks like where you'd want to spend the day. True? In fact, that is like the human work. Go out there and turn the world into a garden. Well, our brains can kind of be like this. So in Philippians 4, verse 5, it says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And in Psalm 37, 8, Specific instructions for this kind of gardening work. It says, refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I like this. There's so much wisdom here. And it uses the word fret. We need to bring fret back. It's not just for guitar players anymore. Fret, that means worry. And I love how it thinks here. I think all this worrying, at least here, starts with what? Uh, Evildoers and the fear that they're going to get away with it. Anybody? Okay. Half of social media right now is just people pointing out evildoers and wanting to stop them from getting away with it with some wicked, harsh typage. And trolling. 
and slammage. Most of it's just clickbait. Because offense is big business online. But here's just the specifics. And what partially this does is like, you know, um, we'll walk around our yard in the backyard. I'm not a good gardener. I do just enough. End of story. And, um, (laughs) but I do like mowing. But there's all these like, when you're walking around, it's hard not to notice the little prickle bush in the grass. Those ones where you just go like, don't let the kids run around in their, in their socks or bare feet. They're little prickle bushes, and, but you know that doesn't belong there, right? In the lawn, the prickle bush doesn't belong. Psalm 37 says, hey, when you're really angry, when you're at wrath, where you're fretful, these feelings and these thoughts can feel so compelling like they belong in your garden. Uh, actually, they ought to be weeded out. They're not, they're not your lawn. And one of the few areas I feel like I've matured over the last 10 years, let the self-own sit there, is trying to develop the habit of going, oh, I'm feeling this. I don't really care why. I would like it to be gone. And any reason that helps this not stick around is good. Uh, within legal limits, you know what I mean? Like, But sometimes the fretting and the wrath and the anger can feel so at home, we never even wonder if it comes from Satan. Let your reasonableness, let your ability to think clearly, let your ability to have humility in your brain be felt by everyone so this is part of the work of participating with God and growing in peace. You know, there's, there's, there's miracles that God has to do all by himself, like raising people from the dead, and there's some miracles where he says, come along for the ride. I've got stuff for you to do. I've got, I've got faithfulness for you to do. It's still going to be a miracle when it happens, but it's going to be one of those miracles that involves your daily obedience. Point number three out of four. Keep talking to Emmanuel. So Emmanuel, if you remember, from Christmas time means God with us. We're, we're pumping you. We're pumping you. There's going to be some Emmanuel songs coming up. It means Emmanu means with us in Hebrew, and El means God. And they often do their sentences in reverse order. So Philippians 4, 5 says, The Lord is at hand, which is like another way to say God is with us. Jesus is with you. Keep talking to him. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, which are like three forms of talking to God, let your requests be made known to God. This is one of the things that I've, someone mentioned, which I think is really true about me, is that you actually do need to talk in order to sort out your thoughts, in order to know how you feel, in order to move forward with your thinking and your feelings. If you, can't, if you can't say it, it's still just in the web of confusion, and um, it's just hanging around in the air like a room full of somebody who's come into a room with a super soaker full of moose urine and has sprayed it all over the place. But God actually says, like, you need to talk. Talk to God. Tell him the truth. Ask him to help. 
and thank him for where he's at. And talking to people is also good for this stuff. But there's something that's buried in here which is so huge for us growing in peace. It's just this like ongoing increase of conviction that Jesus is right here. That he's at hand. Because he makes all the difference. There's this story from the Bible. It's one of the most tragic stories from the Bible. It's in the book of Numbers. It's about the attempt to enter the promised land from Israel. Okay, so we're going back It's about 3,500 years from now. And I remember as a kid, before I was ever a real Christian, never going to church, I think it was around 15, I was startled to find out that Israel did not enter the promised land on their first try. Is this new news to anybody? Maybe you... Okay, don't admit this. But you would just think, if it's God's book, and God's involved, and he called people to enter the promised land, done deal, no trouble. But then to find out that their first event was not a success and they had to wait for 40 years for the do-over until the second time and that's when they made it in. It actually, like, even when you don't go to church or don't know God, you have a theology about what God ought to do and be like. You know, if there is a God, children shouldn't get hurt in war. If there is a God, dogs shouldn't get run over. If there is a God... There ought not to be different religions claiming that there are different gods. If there is a God, you have these thoughts about how God ought to run the place even though he doesn't exist. And I was run into this. It's like, even though I don't believe in God, I should think that they ought to make it in the first try if God is involved in this. But they didn't. And what happened was, if you remember, they came up to the border of the promised land. They sent in some spies. And the spies went in there to go scout out the land. You know, they didn't have Google Maps back then. They didn't have cars where you could just drive it in. It was actually like a multi-day tour just to figure out where the roads are, but also to see where the strongholds were. And then they ended up coming back with this super branch of grapes that looked really huge. And then the spies come to report how it is. Do you remember this? Anybody, somebody, nod your head if you've done this. This is from the book of Numbers. And there's a, but there's this big catastrophe because even though the promised land looks great and God's told them to go there, he promised them like 400 years ago this was going to happen. He just absolutely destroyed Egypt with 10 miraculously, miraculous um, empire-ending plagues. He walked them through the Red Sea. He's already started feeding them with manna despite all this with, with themness that God has been doing. Ten of, the ten, ten of the twelve spies say to the people, there's giants in the land. We're going to get... And two of them, Caleb and uh, Joshua, say we can do it. And the bad report infects the entire nation. If you didn't believe me when I said fear can be infectious, ten people convinced Hundreds of thousands of people that God couldn't do it. And there's this, and they eventually, God says, okay, you won't go in, you won't go in. I'm not going to let you in. I'm going to wait for all of you guys to feed the worms, and then we'll take in your children. But there's this 
amazing little passage where Joshua and Caleb, who were the men of faith in their generation, plead with the nation. It says this in 14, starting in verse 5. It says, And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, so they're pleading for mercy because of this great rejection, this great act of unbelief. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes, which is a sign of mourning, and said to all the congregation of the people, The land which we pass through to spy it out is, exceeding, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And this whole phrase, the Lord is with you, is spoken in Scripture over and over and over again to convince people to not be controlled by how things look and to act in obedience on what God has said in order to enter into God's plan for His people. We have work to do. Uh Uh-oh, here they came. I brought out the... Little, little guns. No, no, they are not big guns. I am sorry. There's big guns sitting in chairs here. These are the, the twigs. These are Moses' sticks. <laughs> we have a job, church. Our job is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord through the spread of the church by the preaching of the gospel. This is our one job. Everything else feeds that or is the fruit of that. We are meant to plant churches and congregations and send missionaries and to multiply the good way with joy. This is why we're here. We're not meant to just fill up the building and then go like, we're so good. We're meant to fill up the building and then have a baby. That's God's way. You get full, you birth it. You get full, you birth it. You get full, you birth it. This is our mission. This is our mission. This is why we exist. And I think sometimes, sometimes, not always I'm not judging, but sometimes we don't get the peace that we could have because we're not on mission with the God who is with us. So a brother was sharing his testimony not long ago, grew up Christian, but had a season where he was actively trying to not believe in God. And one of the things that kind of brought him back was the waves of terror that would come out of nowhere over him. You see, according to our first psalm here, it's God who grants his beloved sleep. And it's God who gives them not the bread of anxious toil, but the bread of faith. And it's him who watches over a city and him who builds a house. And when the church is not on mission for what it ought to be doing, we don't actually have a right to experience the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. We can say no to God, and He can say no to us. Our job is to get in step with the purposes of God for the church and for us with hope That everything needed, both financially and spiritually and relationally and geographically and 
emotionally is supplied to us by the Spirit as we go. First you say yes to the invasion, and then you get the victory over the giants. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. We start by saying, God, I repent for my selfishness. I repent for living for myself. I repent for evaluating everything according to whether or not I'm getting my way in my life. I commit my way to the Lord. I trust you and expect you to act. But the act comes second. So we keep talking to the Lord and we commit our way to him and we trust him and we look for him to do the work. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm just feeling so convicted up here because I'll often be frustrated with the Lord that the peace isn't there. And I haven't done the rejoicing. And I haven't done the in the presence of Godding. And I haven't done the praying, supplicating, and thanksing. It's like you go to your oven and you keep going, where's the cake? Where's the cake? Where's the cake? And I've never put any flour or sugar or cocoa in a bowl with the butter and mixed it together. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And so often the biggest trouble can but just be like that time in between the event or the moment that invokes the disturbance and the moment when the deliverance is experienced. That time in between being in the trust zone, being in the faith zone, being in the wait zone, that is hell sometimes. But we don't give up, and we don't retreat, and we don't shrink back, because there's, there's nothing for us having shrunk back. We trust. All right, I'm going to invite the band up. If you've got any, uh, anything you want to just get off your chest to the Lord... Now's a great time to do it. Uh, Most people who come to the front to get prayed for meet with Jesus. Just saying. So if you need to meet with Jesus, you can. But otherwise, let's just keep seeking him. To be in step with him. To be asking him to change our hearts. And to be patient in the waiting. Amen.